Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you feel like you should be rewarded for your time with us, or you'd just like to support the journal feed, we now offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now then, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the astute Megan Breed, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. The first article was called Ingestion of Caustic Substances out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Caustic injuries. If you've ever wondered what caustic really means, it's actually the same thing as corrosive, except when referring to living tissues. Now then, these caustic substances are dangerous, so here we have a review article on them. And no matter where your patient got it, the GI tract, the eye, dermal, anything, alkalis, acids, and other agents involved with caustic injuries are actually quite common to the emergency department. And we can't forget that injury from things like ingesting alkali substances, looking at U-tide pods, has been increasing. You'll want to be well refreshed on this topic when one of these patients comes through your doors. As with many of the review articles we cover here, this spoon feed on caustic ingestion, ooh, bad pun, is detail heavy. So if you want a fuller picture, I urge you to check out the blog post directly or of course the original article for full details. Now then, this article had a pretty good list of common acids, bases, and other caustics. Knowing what they are and what common products they're found in can be useful as it can help direct your treatment faster. A few common alkalis are ammonium hydroxide found in general cleaners and grease removers. Then there's potassium or sodium hydroxide in drain openers or oven cleaners. And then there's sodium hypochlorite, which is bleach. So you'll find that in any bleach product, as well as in swimming pool chlorinators. Then there are acids, like acetic acid, which is used in food pickling and photographic stop baths, and oxalic acid, which is in metal polish. It's worth noting that even though acids usually get the worst rap, alkalis are generally more dangerous. Alkalis cause saponification and liquefaction, which causes deeper injuries. Acids generally cause coagulative necrosis and aren't as deep. An exception to that for acids is hydrofluoric acid, which works by a different mechanism and so can behave somewhat differently. When in doubt, though, get poison control or your local toxicologist on the line. By way of clinical presentations, after ingestion, you may commonly see pain, drooling, strider, or respiratory difficulty. Be wary of things like changes in voice and difficulty handling secretions, as these are often ominous signs of impending decompensation. Major GI adverse effects, such as perforations, peritonitis, and mediastinitis, are all quite common with severe ingestion. Now then, on to management. Assess the airway, stabilize the patient, and decontaminate. You'll want to remove all clothing and irrigate with copious amounts of water, but be sure to brush off any dry chemicals first. Up to 50% of adult intentional ingestions may need to be intubated. Once your patient is fully uncovered, Check for external burn marks, but try not to be falsely reassured in children since many will have injury on endoscopy even though there are no markings on their face or in their mouth. Speaking of endoscopy, this is going to be an important step. The endoscopic grade of injury has to do with depth and severity, and this is going to go on to determine management. 
The endoscopic grade ranges from zero to four with many steps in between. Grades zero and one are minimal or mild injury. These patients generally do quite well. Grade 2A are worse with friability, hemorrhage, or superficial ulcers. These patients still do quite well though. Grade 2B though have deeper ulceration and are more likely to form a stricture. Grades 3A and 3B are different degrees of necrosis. And finally, grade 4 is perforation. Both grades 3 and 4 have poor outcomes, if not fatal. This paper included a pretty comprehensive algorithm, and I think it's worth taking a look at. You can see it up on the blog or in the original article. But for now, that's it for our spoonful on caustic injuries. Now onto the second article, oral fluconazole use in the first trimester and risk of congenital malformations, a population-based cohort study out of the BMJ. Due to a really fascinating interplay between the mother and the fetus, pregnancy leads to a relative state of immunocompromise. This tends to lead to infections, and as a result, vaginal candidiasis is common in pregnancy. Treating this with oral fluconazole 150 mg once is a non-messy way to avoid things like topical azoles. The problem with this, though, is that in 2011, the FDA issued a warning about high-dose fluconazole in pregnancy. In 2016, the JAMA published an article that found higher rates of stillbirth and miscarriage in women receiving fluconazole during their pregnancy. But then a large follow-up study appeared to be quite reassuring. This study that we have today sought to pin down low-dose fluconazole. Is that safe? This study used a large national public insurance database to compare women who received oral fluconazole for vulvovaginal candidiasis in the first trimester to those who received topical azoles instead. Common things such as conotruncal malformations like tetralogy of Fralot and oral clefts were unaffected by this. However, when considering all MSK malformations together, there was an increased risk with fluconazole after propensity matching, with a risk ratio of 1.3. This risk increased with higher doses of fluconazole. Now, in a spoonful, even at low doses for vulvovaginal candidiasis, fluconazole was associated with a higher risk of MSK malformations when given in the first trimester. Next, the third article titled Treatment of Headache in the Emergency Department, Haloperidol in the Acute Setting, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Headaches. Enough of them come into the emergency department to give you one. This is the fifth leading cause of patients presenting to the emergency department. So that's a lot. Benign headaches tend to get a minimal workup, but the length of stay still tends to be greater than two hours while we wait for pain control. There's got to be a better, faster way to do this. How about haloperidol? This was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial from a single center, comparing 2.5 milligrams of IV haloperidol to placebo in 118 patients for acute benign headaches in patients 15 to 55 years old. The primary outcome was pain reduction at 60 minutes, but they were also able to see improvements at 30 minutes. 35% of patients reported more than 50% pain reduction at 30 minutes, and 64% had had that reduction by 60 minutes. Furthermore, almost 60% of patients treated with haloperidol were reporting headache resolution prior to discharge. If patients didn't report at least a 50% reduction in headache pain, they then received rescue medication of IV ketorolac and metoclopramide. But only 31% of patients from the haloperidol group required that, compared with 78 patients in the placebo group. 
Also, fewer patients after receiving haloperidol had a return of symptoms in the next 24 hours, and three-quarters of them said they would like the same treatment in the future. Having seen no significant adverse events in this trial, this could conceivably be part of our treatment plans for benign headaches, though this was a small study. Now, in a spoonful, low-dose IV haloperidol at 2.5 milligrams given to patients with benign headaches showed improvement in pain in as little as 30 minutes without significant adverse effects, not even a prolongation of the QT. The fourth article, Risk Stratification Management to Remove Low-Risk Penicillin Allergy Labels in the Intensive Care Unit, out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. Penicillin, always all about those penicillins, False allergy to penicillins, though, is associated with increased healthcare use, more surgical site infections, more treatment failures for common infections, and it's also important for antimicrobial stewardship. So from that, frankly, it's pretty obvious that we just don't perform as well when we're deprived of one of our favorite tools. If we could remove false allergy listings on patients who aren't actually allergic, this would benefit our patients and the system. Somewhere between 8 and 15% of the U.S. population carries a penicillin allergy label. But when you put them to the test, only 5% of those can be verified. Who's even handing these out? I don't even know. I'm not sure. Anyways, to develop a risk stratification model, 184 patients in an allergy clinic with low-risk pen allergies were put to an oral challenge test, and 100% were asymptomatic. This was then translated to a single-center ICU for another 68 patients, 58 of which were challenged with 250 milligrams of oral amoxicillin. Again, none of these patients had a reaction, and their allergy labels were removed. One patient did end up having their label reinstated, though, after some nausea and vomiting following a subsequent prescription. So while you shouldn't ignore that this study took place in an ICU where they would be ready for everything, since 100% of these patients had no reactions, I hope that this leads to more primary care clinics seeking to wipe out false labels with more oral challenge testing. All right, in a spoonful, in both an outpatient clinic and an ICU population, Patients deemed low risk for penicillin allergies who underwent direct challenge with oral amoxicillin had no reported adverse events, at least in this study. Finally, the last article, number five. This was titled Top 10 Evidence-Based Countermeasures for Night Shift Workers, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Sad as it might be, night shifts are part of the job in emergency medicine, and from night owls to morning larks, it's still a bit of a pain. And not only that, it comes with adverse health outcomes. But we love our patients, and the ER needs to be staffed 24-7, 365. This article offers 10 evidence-based countermeasures to improve health in night shift workers. I think that they're all relevant to touch on, so we're going to do the whole list, which hopefully you can adopt and your institution can help you adopt. Number one, schedule for circadian rhythms. If you have a rotating schedule, then rotate clockwise for better satisfaction, performance, and higher levels of alertness. Number two, nap before your shift. It lowers fatigue. Number three, maximize bright light on your shift, particularly blue light. This tells your body and your brain that it's time to keep you awake. Try to get blue lights installed or bring your own. Number four, nap during your shift. If you can, it helps. Number five, the best time for caffeine is early, 
the lowest alertness is between 3 and 4 a.m. To combat this, the best strategy is 4 milligrams per kg of caffeine between 12.20 and 1.20 a.m. Number six, avoid large meals. This can cause big changes in hormone levels, which are critical in circadian rhythms. Small snacks throughout the night can avoid large swings. Number seven, just like I said, you want lots of light at work. Once you're done, you want as little as possible. Get some of those orange tinted sunglasses so that you can feel and look your best. Number eight, consider melatonin. The evidence isn't amazing, but there is some, and there are very few side effects. Remember, though, that more isn't better with melatonin. There's no dose-response relationship reliably described. Number nine, sleep in a dark environment. Blackout curtains or a basement cave is just right for this purpose. Finally, number 10, sleep in a cool environment. Rapid decline of core body temperature and heat loss is associated with sleep initiation. And that's the whole list. So hopefully some of these can help you, even if just as a reminder of habits that you know about but have been letting slip. And before we go, we'll do a quick review. What did we cover today? First, a review of caustic ingestions. A helpful algorithm can be found on our website. Second, oral fluconazole, even at low doses, was associated with MSK malformations when given in the first trimester of pregnancy. Third, a potential new addition to pain treatment for benign headaches. Low-dose haloperidol at 2.5 milligrams was showing good pain reduction in as little as 30 minutes and headache resolution before discharge in as many as 59% of patients. Fourth is that you can support taking the chance to oral challenge your patients to get false penicillin allergies off their charts. Low-risk patients from an outpatient clinic and an ICU were challenged with oral amoxicillin and none had adverse reactions. And last was tips for the night shift. You want bright lights when you want to be awake and no lights when you don't want to be. Caffeine is best early in your shift. Melatonin might help. Sleep in a cool room and try for small snacks instead of big meals. And that's it for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your emails. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.